Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the 100th episode of Red Inca, and I wanted to do something, well, a little bit different here. And so I've looked at the first time I ever sat in a team dugout, back when I was a journalist covering Hong Kong in two matches against the Netherlands. It involves the ICC kicking me out, a man pissing while breaking protocol, and me dreaming of a job that didn't actually exist at that point. Huge thanks to everyone who listens to Red Inca. We started it in the middle of the first lockdown, you know, when kind of every human being on the planet started a podcast, but it's still grown and grown since then. We now are up to two episodes a week and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters and we're now working towards bringing on a third episode as well. So thank you all so much for your support and I really hope you enjoy this episode. The ICC once threw me off a bus. In Nagpur of 2016, I was there for the World T20, and I found myself having a week of covering the start of the official tournament, which was obviously still the associate qualifiers. And I had this plan that I'd had for the last few years going into that point, that I wanted to sit in a dugout and report on what happens from there. There were four teams who were going to be in Nagpur for the start of that tournament. Zimbabwe, Afghanistan, and Scotland didn't really want me on their bench. So that left me with Hong Kong. At that point, Cricket Hong Kong was very progressive and they couldn't believe that someone actually wanted to do this. Their CEO was Tim Cutler, a proper member of the Cricket Twitterati who now runs Cricket Vanuatu and the Emerging Cricket website. But back then he was doing the Hong Kong Blitz, which was a pioneering T20 competition. And he and a bunch of other incredible cricket people like Ryan Campbell had turned Hong Kong into an interesting new threat in the associate cricket scene. They'd also once asked if I wanted to be their media manager. So I figured that they liked me. Weirdly, the biggest problem wasn't getting them to agree. It was that when they gave me access, it was the player, media and officials access clearance. And that automatically cancelled my press pass. You see, I was the first person to ever try report from the other side of a cricket tournament. And the ICC didn't really have any way to allow this. You could get a press pass or a players and officials pass, but their system couldn't handle both. And you must remember at this stage in my career, it was only a year earlier that I'd released a documentary about the governance of cricket called Death of a Gentleman. So it's fair to say that the ICC weren't going to change the rules or systems for me. And I think they were a bit upset that I wanted to be on the bench in the first place. So I had a problem. I could work behind the scenes with Hong Kong, but there's no guarantee that I'd get to attend the rest of the tournament as a journalist. 
which of course was causing ESPN, my employers, some headaches. So they asked the ICC to cancel my players and officials pass and reinstate my press credentials. When I got to Nagpur, however, Hong Kong was still desperate for the story to go ahead. And also other weird things had happened, like apparently a hotel room had been booked for me all the way through. I'd like to apologize to the ICC for that. So after some chatting with Hong Kong Cricket, they decided to just put me on the team bus and see how that went. It went very poorly. We never actually left the hotel and I was pulled from the bus by a very angry official. And I was now on the outskirts of Nagpur and had to walk a bunch just to find a tuk-tuk to get to the ground. At that point, I thought my chances of sitting on the bench of a team was pretty low. But I was still quite desperate to do it, especially in T20 cricket, because that's where I thought there was the biggest disconnect between what fans and media said and what the teams actually did. During the rest of that World Cup, despite the fact that I was yanked off the bus, I did learn a lot about T20 cricket, but I still wanted to learn quite a bit more. So after that World Cup, I tried a bunch of different teams, first-class teams, franchise teams, international teams, including associates, and I heard things like, oh, that's the kind of thing we'd love to have done, but no, not sure we're allowed to do that. Yes, that would be great, but just let me check and get back to you. Nothing ever came of it. And so I figured that Hong Kong would still be my best chance, but it would have to be away from the ICC tournaments because of the obvious complications. The problem was that getting to travel to Hong Kong wasn't that easy. Cricket Info weren't about to send me to cover one of their series. So my history as a travel agent sort of came a little bit handy here. As I worked out, I could probably get a free stopover in Hong Kong if I booked the right kind of ticket. I just needed really a trip to India or Australia. And it happened to be that the next time I was going to India, which was less than a year later, I got a free flight to Hong Kong tacked onto my original fare. And Hong Kong were hosting the Netherlands just before Australia's test matches against India started. I wasn't going to cover one-day internationals, though, because Hong Kong had ODI status, but Netherlands did not. These were list A games I was going to cover, and there were two of them. So I actually tried to sit on Hong Kong's bench for one, and then the Dutch for the second game. It would be fair to say that the Dutch media manager did not want me to do it. Not only did he get a bit touchy when I emailed him in the first place, but he actually tried to complain that I was going to be sitting on Hong Kong's bench altogether. But to get around all these problems, Hong Kong had done something I wasn't aware of. They had listed me as their media manager for the series. So the ICC match referee was made aware that I was with them during the game, and then afterwards I would be writing for Crick Info. And he thought that was fine. The Dutch team also had no problem with this, as they didn't even know what I was doing. So it wasn't until later they found out. The morning of the game, I arrived at the Tin Kwong Recreation Ground in Mong Kok, which is really no different to any suburban cricket ground in the world, except for the fact that I suppose it hosts international games. Oh, and it also has 300 spanking new apartments looking down over it, which isn't that common in international cricket. No one was actually at the gate when I arrived, partly because I got there so early, and also because this was associate cricket and things were different here. After walking around the ground once and being none the wiser as to what was happening, Max Abbott, who was Cricket Hong Kong's marketing director, now I think works for the ICC, I think in World Cup planning, He came up and gave me my lanyard. And then I met Charlie Burke, who's sort of the godfather of modern Hong Kong cricket and was at that stage about to leave as director of cricket. It was actually Burke I was sitting with when I was on the bus. And it's now the same guy who takes me over to the Hong Kong team tent to meet the side and the supporting staff. And then eventually head coach Simon Cook. At one stage, I'm standing alone and the Dutch manager sees me and comes over. And I can't tell if he's still upset. So I make a joke about how I will say on this side of the tent as far away from his team as possible. In fact, I did that so well that Peter Boren didn't even realise I was at the ground until he saw me after the first game at the hotel. 
it's fair to say, though, that the Dutch manager didn't take that as a joke and makes it pretty clear that I am to stay on that side of the tent. And because kind of no one's in charge, I have no idea what I can and can't do other than I have to put my phone away. So I switch it off and leave it in my bag. Cook sees me standing around looking stupid, so he gets me a chair. And I've gone from being kicked off the team bus to now having a coach get me a chair. And the seating plan is analyst slash coach, head coach, journalist. Cook made me instantly comfortable and acted like it couldn't have been more normal for me to be there. But even so, for the first innings, I don't move from the chair. Literally, I don't go to the toilet. I don't move around the tent at all. I stay as far away from the Dutch team as possible, and I try to be seen rather than heard, which is, as you might be aware, probably not my normal state. I didn't even go and get my food at lunchtime until the Dutch were seated and eating theirs, just so I don't end up in the queue with any of them. And there are so many things that I learned about coaching and analytics and role triangles and associate cricket and leadership just in the first couple of hours. One thing that jumps out at me is that I was programmed like most journalists and cricket watchers to keep an eye looking forward. I'm thinking about what my copy will be and what the end of the game might be like. That's obviously not what the Hong Kong team were thinking about. When Roloff fandom ever starts to hit out, I start calculating what he will do to the total if he takes off. While the coaching team is looking into why they have the wrong player at point. Hong Kong bring on a part-timer at the wrong time, and I wonder how much it will cost. And they wonder how they can make him a more effective bowler. They talk about how good it would be to give their captain an earpiece so they can give him constant feedback and advice. And I bring up Hansi Cronier. The weird thing is that there was no extra chat here that you wouldn't get in a press box. It's just more frequent. I mean, there's no deadlines and no reason to shut up. And unlike a press box where every sentence spoken, someone will retort to, in this environment, you just have this endless stream of comments that just sort of disappear. Oh, Baba, don't do that. Why does he always scoop on a free hit? And these comments just sort of float away. It feels in the dugout for all the talk about tactics and making people better. The things that I remember the most are the rhetorical laments. And sometimes it's just like being in a regular cricket team. Someone gets out early and you don't talk to them until they're finished fuming or if they talk to you first. The young kid keeps being sent off on errands and the old scorer, or in this case the analyst, makes sarcastic comments when the players do or say something silly. The senior players hold court and there are cliques and they laugh at one guy for being a bit flashy. I could be at a match watching some friends of mine play. But there is also the use of modern sports data, the run rate queries, discussions of pass scores, players who can look at their pitch maps, and a bateau looks at several replays of his dismissal. Not to mention that I get to see how a physio puts together split webbing, which I get to see not once, but twice, because the split webbing resplits and has to be done again. This game is an international, I suppose, at least with the teams being played, despite the fact it's a list A game, and it's being live-streamed around the world. There is a match referee behind me who is policing the game and what happens in my tent, and there will be gambling on this match. There are ACSU officers following it. And if I do anything wrong, I could cause an embarrassing incident for Cricket Hong Kong. That's all on my mind, plus I can't shake the idea that I'm about to be thrown out again, that someone from the ICC is going to contract someone at the ground and I'll be removed from the PMOA area by security guards. The problem with making a film about corruption and mismanagement in cricket is that you always think you're about to be kicked out. In fact, up until a couple of years ago, the first game of every series when I put my press accreditation in, I always expect it to be denied. Luckily, that has very rarely happened to me and no one comes to kick me out of the Hong Kong tent. In fact, something pretty embarrassing does happen that only I see. A drunk patron just accidentally walks into the team change rooms. I pointed out to Cook, who hadn't noticed, and he runs in there to get the guy out. But unfortunately, he has to wait for the guy to, you know, finish his business. 
There's another great story as well of one of the Hong Kong officials before the second game getting a little bit hungover the night before. And if I remember the story correctly, and I may be getting this wrong, might not have even been on Hong Kong, the island, when the game was being played. And that person had the key to the locker where the balls were being held. So they had to uh, improvise. Things like that happen in associate cricket very often. And because there's no one there to report on them, they just don't get mentioned. And I'm not reporting on that game in that way anyway. I'm looking at other things. In fact, to be honest, for most of the first day, I just decided not to go into the change room. Not through fear, but I just figured that the Hong Kong team accepted me so far as partly because I stayed a healthy distance away from them. And that the change room on match days is something that you get invited into, not just waddle towards. But at one stage, I do have to use the toilet. And on the way in, I see that my photo on the wall is one of the accepted people in the PMOA area. And the photo is just my ESPN Cricket Info profile picture. One thing I really enjoyed about being on the bench was the purity and watching the game with no distractions. I can't check my phone to see what someone is saying on Twitter. I can't go off and start Googling what a roll triangle even is. No one can call me and, and I barely miss a ball. And that's only when I'm furiously trying to write down notes of everything that's happening around me. There are times when I forget that I'm not part of the team. And I think if Hong Kong had more senior players, I think they had five teenagers in one of the games. I might actually have been put in my place a bit more. Instead, as one of the few adults in the tent, I'm shown respect. And at one point, I'm even just chatting to one player about his dismissal. And it's important to know that this was my childhood dream. My whole life, I'd love talking cricket with people. I was a slipsfielder, a captain, the guy in the dressing room that continually wanders about every tactical move of the opposition. I knew that early on, I was much better at thinking and talking about cricket than I ever was at playing it. And I had times when I thought this could be like a career, but I didn't really know what that meant. Like I was at the MCG in November of 1998 for a Victoria versus New South Wales game. The MCG in November is not a busy place. The footy season is finished, Boxing Day and the ODIs were more than a month away, and there were probably less than 500 of us in the crowd watching that game. And my seat was just near the players' dressing room, and I was in the last row with only the walkway behind me. With New South Wales doing well, I was getting a bit annoyed, so I was talking and mumbling to myself. And without really me noticing, someone had walked up behind me and said, what do you think of Richards? And I didn't even really turn around. I just started moaning about the fact that he doesn't move his foot to when he plays his cover drive and that they just kept the covers open and he keeps finding the gap. And then I turned around to the person who was talking to me and he was wearing a suit and also some kind of sporty sunglasses. And I instantly realized that I wasn't just talking to another frustrated cricket fan, but to Australian chairman of selectors, Trevor Holmes, who then asked me if I thought that Richards could play. Of course, I then went into a diatribe about how Matthew Elliott was far better than Corey Richards. And then we just sat there silently watching the game for a few minutes before he walked to somewhere else and probably chatted to someone else. I mean, hilariously, Elliott would bat twice in that match against an attack that included Brett Lee, Stuart Clark, and Stuart McGill, and he'd make two incredible hundreds. And for years, I had this fantasy that Holmes would come up to me towards the end of that match and understand that I knew what I was talking about that somehow he would see this mega exciting cricket brain that could help him and the team. And then I'd somehow do that for a living. Of course, the thing is that that job didn't exist at that point, right? And now it does as an analyst. And in some ways on that bench for Hong Kong, I was there as a journalist, but I was also there kind of as an analyst. They were bouncing ideas off me because I was there and I knew things. They had another analyst, so obviously I wasn't taking anyone's job but they couldn't help but ask me questions. The interesting thing for me is how little I knew back then about how everything worked. It was very clear that I was still thinking far more as a journalist at that point. But to go from having a chat with Trevor Holmes to be sitting next to Hong Kong coach was a dream for me. 
And it was very special. And I suppose for Simon Cook, it was just another part of being an associate coach. Chris Silverwood doesn't have to have a journalist beside him the whole time. And it wasn't even the only thing they made Cook do. At one stage, he had to go and commentate during the game. And also, he was very aware that I was writing everything down. And I was, because that's what I do. But the Hong Kong coaching staff don't have a lot of voices. So to have someone else there to talk to, even just to vent at, was quite important for him. By the second game, I kind of felt like I was a member of the squad, even if in no way was I doing anything that was helping the team. And when Hong Kong collapsed in the second match, I realized how powerless the coach and the supporting staff are. They tried to give out good, simple information that could help their batters, and their batters went out there and played stupid shots repeatedly. In fact, after Hong Kong's epic collapse, Cook chatted to the team and then sent them on their way and came over to find me packing up, where he started asking what I thought of what had happened and what they could have done and any sense I could make out of the whole thing. I got the feeling he was just happy to talk to someone who wasn't actually involved who would tell him what they thought. For me, that was the greatest moment of being on that Hong Kong bench. It was me as a random cricket person just talking to another person in cricket. But in this particular situation, a head coach of an international team was asking me to help him improve his team going forward. And then we finished chatting and he went into the change room to live that life and I went off to write my copy. And at the time I thought, that was it, right? That's my chance. I've had that moment of living my childhood dream and I'll probably never get to do that again. And then two years later, I was watching another bus going away. This time it was the Solution Lucia Stars bus. And I was actually the analyst. I had the accred. I was going to get paid and it was my first job with the cricket side. Sadly, on that day, I wasn't thrown off the bus. The team bus left two minutes early and I missed it. The interesting thing about that Solusha job, thinking back on it, is that it was almost exactly 20 years after I'd had that conversation with Trevor Hones. It took me a while to get that gig and also a while to work out these team buses. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets. Podcast Network.